like those of you who are here tonight to worship, tonight I'm going to begin preaching through the book of Joshua. The scriptures which preaching through the book of Joshua on Wednesday nights. I do not know how long it will take. I do not know uh, where it will lead us. I do not know how exhaustive it will be. We've had some very thrilling uh, studies in Joshua, thrilling to me, the one about Gilgal, the glory side of Jordan, the one about meeting the captain of the Lord's host. Uh, after Jordan, when Joshua really did business with the Lord. Tonight, I just want to begin with chapter 1. We'll try to plow new ground. We may be selective. We may skip around. I'm not sure, but I just understand somehow that the Lord wants us in this very demanding time that is upon us to look at a part of His Word where boldness was needed and where God supplied everything that was required. Tonight, I want us to look at Joshua 1, verses 1 to 9. And if you had to title this, you might call it a time for boldness. Now, consider that Israel had both strong motivation to follow the Lord and strong temptation to be unfaithful to the Lord. Because it is true and it was undeniable and there were every uh, individual in Israel knew for a fact that God had bared the mighty arm of His power in an unparalleled and unique way to deliver Israel, a nation of slaves, from the most advanced and powerful nation on the face of the earth, the nation of Egypt. They had been scarcely out of that land of promise when they began to rebel and God began to punish. They had tried Him and tried Him again. They had made a, an idol uh, in direct a disregard for God's command and had worshipped Jehovah but had set up the idol as the object of worship and Moses had had to intercede at that point lest God would have destroyed the people by his own admission. They continued to try the Lord. They complained. They looked backward to Egypt from which God had so miraculously delivered them and finally in a fatal and irreversible rebellion they refused to obey God and walked down the lush green valley of Kadesh Barnea into the land of promise which God had promised to give them. So these people of Israel who come with Joshua to the Jordan in a very trying time, a time for boldness, had great motivation to believe that God could and had in the past helped and delivered and done His will through the people. But at the same time, they had strong temptation to be afraid and to be uh, very quiet and timid in their following of the Lord. For they realized that however they must have interpreted it, it's easier for us a long way off from it. God had not taken them into the promised land. They had wandered for 40 years in circles on a small triangle of land across which a man could walk at a slow pace in slightly over a week. And so they come now to Jordan, the very brink of everything they've ever desired, with an unparalleled opportunity, something that the world had never seen before, that God would give His people their own permanent and peculiar possession in history. And the land that He had designated to Abraham would become theirs. And I think very much like the time that they faced, we face a time that requires boldness. 
I would point out to you that Joshua could have done a maintenance operation and he could have been a caretaker leader and he could have kept Israel flourishing and walking in circles in the desert for the remainder of his life. And though the land of Israel was filled with obstacles and enemies and though the challenge was very great and fear was very real, Joshua was not content to do that. And I am persuaded that this people who are the people of God at First Baptist of Yukon are not content to live on the dwelling places of the past and are not content to live on the blessings of yesterday and to bask in the aura of some past history but are willing under the leadership of God to cross new boundaries, to open new territory and to seek the blessing of God in new ways that we have never done before. Joshua was told in this passage, we'll look at it a little more in detail in a moment, that the width and the breadth of his kingdom was limited by one thing. And that was by the courage he had in stepping, putting his foot on the ground that God had promised him. For the scriptures say, whatever place you put your foot, that will I give to you as I promised Moses. Notice the temptation was heightened by the fact that Israel, from the arousing of her national consciousness there in Egypt, had been led by Moses. Moses was in many ways a very unique man. He was schooled in all the wisdom of Egypt and persistent legend from the great ancient past outside the Bible tells us that Moses very easily could have become Pharaoh, but it did not work out that way, whatever the reason. Moses has been the instrument in the hand of God. We are told that God spoke not directly to the elders of Israel, not to Aaron, not to even Joshua in his earlier days, but only to Moses. And, and Moses was the spokesman of God to the people. But, but now Moses was gone. And, and God reminds Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. But then something very startling. God does not tell Joshua to go into, as a sports team will do, a rebuilding program. He does not tell him to fall back and bide his time until he gathers obvious and human strength to meet the need. Rather, he says in one breath, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you arise and go over this Jordan and possess the land which I told the people that I would give unto them. There it is that he says, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon. That is what I have already given you, as I said unto Moses. Joshua is promised by God, emphasizing the fact that it is not who we are that matters. It is whose we are. Joshua is promised in verse 5, there shall not be any man able to stand before you all the days of your life. For just as I was with Moses, so shall I be with you. And here we, the people of God, need to learn that our hopes 
and our aims and the will of God and the work of His kingdom and the opportunities in His service and the possibilities for the church have never lain in who was around or who was in charge or who it was. All that matters is, is God there? And is God in it? God was saying to Joshua, I want you to know and you teach the people to know that it was not Moses that mattered. It was the God of Moses. It was not Moses that made the difference. It was rather whom Moses yielded his allegiance to and and in what ways he followed and honored God. Moses is called as was the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, the servant of God. Moses my servant. That's what Isaiah says when he talks about Jesus. And Joshua is commanded to be that kind of a person. And the people are commanded to be that kind of followers who follow not a man but God through the man whom God has appointed in his sovereign majesty to lead the people. Now all of that was not very structured, but I want you to see some things that this boldness which is required in this time consists of in verses 6 and the first part of verse 7. This time for boldness requires strength. It requires strength. God commands be strong and of a very good courage. For unto this people shall you divide the land for an inheritance, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous. The key to following the Lord and being successful in His work is found all over this passage of Scripture. You know, very often in Israel was no different you recall how Joshua himself fell a victim to the same temptation just a few days after all of this. After the great victory at Jericho, Joshua reverted back to a humanistic approach to the needs of Israel and he humanistically evaluated the strength of the enemy and got himself badly defeated at Ai and at Bethel. We are not told to count the relative strength of our resources or number our people. We are not told to go by anything that a man can measure. We are told one thing, that is to hear and to obey the voice of the Lord. But where does this strength come in? My idea of strength had always been that strength was something you summoned from within yourself, that appeals to our humanity. That appeals to our inner self, to our ego, to our own vanity that we can reach down inside of ourselves and pull up when circumstances demand it, a kind of a strength required to follow the Lord. But that is not what God was talking about when he spoke to Joshua. The key to being successful for God is found all over this passage. That key is found on both sides of this command. He says, I swear, I I made a vow, I myself have promised that you will do what I command you. And it is a formula that would not work out very well on paper with pencil when we're talking about mathematics. But somehow at one in the same time, the sovereign and un 
unbridled power of God plus the obedience of his people put together equal always fulfillment of the promises of God. There has never been a time when if God's people were faithful, all of heaven and all of nature and all of the universe would not bow to see that God's word was honored and that God's promises were kept. This strength that is commanded in this time for boldness is a strength that is based on the truthfulness of God. Moses must have felt very strange when he stood before the Red Sea and raised his arms to see if the water would part. But somehow through 40 years of following sheep in the backside of the Midianite desert, Moses had discovered that if God had promised to do something, God would find a way to do it. We're not told to be strong in ourselves. We're not told to stand and fight in the power of the flesh and to do God any favors. We are told very simply that our strength is based on the promises of God. And as we take the promises of God and make them our own and become aware of them and begin to live our lives on the basis of them, we become like the house that was founded on the rock and the circumstances of life and temptation and the assault of the enemy cannot, cannot destroy what God is doing through us. And so there is strength. That is a tempting thing to be strong. And yet that strength is found on the promises of God and with a deep sense of our own weakness as we live our lives according to his word. But then in the, in the rest of verse 7 and verse 8, this boldness that is demanded for these times in which we live is a boldness that demands obedience. It is a boldness that demands obedience. Notice what he says. The reason for this strength is this, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. And here is a very important thing in our dealings with God. Turn not from it to the left, to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. Obedience is demanded, and that obedience that is demanded is an exact obedience in correspondence to the commandments of God. Now, in the ancient world, in the Hebrew language, is a great joy to study because if you can ever get by the recognition factory, the, the Hebrew language is the most awful thing you've ever seen. To look at it, it's just one step up from hieroglyphics, and it's very hard to learn to recognize the characters of the Hebrew alphabet. But once that obstacle is passed, it is a joy to study this language because the Hebrew language uses pictures from nature and pictures from human experience as it illustrates. And the words are, are very simple words that are drawn from the environment around us. Most of the time, the right hand is the strong hand. More people are right-handed than are left-handed. And so the ancient Hebrews took the illustration of the strong hand 
and used it to uh, symbolize strength and goodness. We get our word righteous and righteousness from this very simple and obvious illustration of the right hand, the strong hand. The left hand was used often to symbolize weakness or, or guilt or sinfulness. And what Joshua is commanded by the Lord is very simple. God says to Joshua, all I want you to do is obey me. He says, do not go beyond what I have said to the good side. And do not go beyond what I have said to the bad side. You know, it's hard to understand, but the line between true doctrine and heresy is a very fine line. You will find in the recent modern history of Christianity, every conceivable part of the Christian faith has been taken to heresy. Liberal theology has exalted the humanity of man above the mind of God. And the liberal, the liberal theologian demands a rationalistic, understandable, laboratory, provable answer for every question he has or he won't believe it. On the other side, rabid and unreasonable, conservative, hardline fundamentalism has exalted the Bible above God and practices bibliolatry, which is idol worship. The neo-Pentecostal or the charismatic movement has exalted God the Holy Spirit above God the Son and God the Father. Thus, it is idol worship. You will find that anything that is true can be taken so far that it becomes heresy. Anything that is true can be abused until it is heresy. The bloodiest wars in history have been fought in the name of God when people of well-meaning intentions carried the word in the ways of God to an idiotic, heretical extreme and used them as an excuse to violate greater commandments of God such as love and honor for human life and caring for other people above all things. And Joshua is given the best and the simplest advice that anyone can ever be given. That's just honor God. Obey the word. Do what God says or else. This boldness in these times in which we live demands strength. It demands obedience. There are many ways we could illustrate. Uh, I guess illustrations close to home would be those illustrations of charismatic uh, movements are in certain parts of our country. Fundamentalism that has become so uh, tied to the scriptures and elevated them so high that uh, love and compassion has been lost and, and uh, Christianity becomes a holy crusade to purge the world of heresy. I suppose we can understand that, but on the other side, it consists not just in liberal theology that says, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as, as so long as you're sincere, and if I can't understand it, I won't believe it. But beyond that, it comes to uh, otherwise solid and sound conservative churches and denominations who have said, now, we've got to make our boundaries broad enough for disagreement. That's true. We've got to be compassionate, and we've got to realize that there is room for disagreement about some things. That's true. 
But then they forget to draw the line where God draws the line. And friends, that's what the Bible says. We may hear it in a form like this. Oh, well, now I know what's right, but after all, we've got to keep folks happy. I wasn't aware of that. I thought we had to keep God happy. Oh, now I know what the Bible says, but after all, we've got to be practical. Practical? How do you think we all got here? And, and why do you think God supernaturally preserved this book for the last 3,000 years if it's not practical? And strange though it may seem, and hard though it may be very often, we must, without qualification, live according to God's Word. And we must be more concerned with what God wants, indeed what God demands, than we must be in pleasing everybody. Now, Jesus Christ was the most compassionate and loving man that ever lived, but there was never one time when he lowered his standards in the name of convenience. Jesus didn't get mad at anybody, but he just told the fellows that were flocking to him one day. He, he knew what their need was. He knew what their, their weakness was. And one said, Lord, I want to follow you, but let me go and bury my father now. Now, what that means was he wanted to be a good Jewish boy and go live at home however long it took for his daddy to die. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. In other words, if you love me, if you love me. If you don't, go home. One came to him with a very real need for material security and, and Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have anywhere to lay his head at night. We must be, above all things, concerned with what pleases God. You see, unhappiness in any of us, in any area of our life, if it's at home if it's on the job, if it's with government, if it's, if it's in the church, unhappiness is never directly related to what happens outside of us. Happiness and unhappiness is on the inside. And sad experience. These experiences are all over the Bible. Read the book of Judges. Sad experience has long proven what God commanded Joshua, that you never solve anybody's unhappiness by yielding to unscriptural demands that they make. We're going to find out in Joshua, indeed in the book of Numbers, you can find out that finally God gets enough when people rebel against his word and his way and God takes care of them. So I'm no vigilante. God's the judge. But I just know that I've discovered one thing and only by the grace of God did I survive the experiences by which I learned it. And that is I have a lot more fear of God than I do of anybody else. And I am much more concerned with what God thinks than I am with what anybody else thinks. And we must learn if God is going to do what he wants to do in this place and not raise up somebody else to do it, that we've got to obey God, turning from his way neither to the right hand nor to the left, neither to the good nor to the bad, the strong or the weak, but just doing exactly what God says. Now, I've saved verse 8 for this purpose. 
I believe that every Christian ought to memorize Scripture, and I believe the number one Scripture on your list ought to be Joshua 1.8. There is only one place in the Bible that success is promised. That is Joshua 1.8. The word prosperity occurs very rarely in the Old Testament Hebrew, but it occurs twice in verses 7 and 8. And the only place in the whole Bible that God promises material success is to the one who lives in his word. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Friends, God promises success and prosperity unbridled, unqualified, unrestricted, and don't let anybody tell you different. And that is promised to the person who lives according to his word and who dwells in it every day. And when we don't experience it, very likely it is perhaps because we do not pay the price. But I have yet to ever meet anybody who honored and obeyed God to the extent of making the Word of God the priority of their lives, who regretted it, or who was dissatisfied with the result. And when you can look back on years of experience of memorizing Scripture, when you can look back on years of experience of reading the Word systematically, day in and day out, time after time, translation after translation, until the very fibers of your soul have been in, infused with the Word of God and you're saturated with the mind of God and the Word of God, and then you can tell me it doesn't work, I'll listen. But until then, I will believe Joshua 1.8, that he who lives and abides in the Word of God will be prosperous and successful. And then in verse 9, the boldness that is demanded requires strength, it requires obedience, it requires trust. Here we come back to the key to being successful for God. For here he says, Have not I commanded you? How can I be strong? How can I be obedient by the power that is given when God commands His people to do something? You see, the commandments of God carry with them a power for obedience if obedience is attempted. Have not I commanded you, be of a good courage, be strong, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. Now that covers the gamut. Be strong, be of a good courage. Neither be afraid or dismayed. Why? For the Lord thy God is with you wherever you go. It was our pleasure to visit with an old and dear family friend at some length when we were at Glorietta. This man has recently moved from a 15-year pastorate uh, during which time he and his church mutually put each other on the map. The man is very famous, very well-known, a very prolific author, widely sought-after speaker, and he has just gone to one of the great problem churches in the world less than a year ago. 
It is a church where every Sunday they will see six or 7,000 people. And he said it's like pastoring 50 small churches. Every class, every organization is structured and runs its own affairs. And everything within the church is a, a body unto itself. And it's a, a whole church in name only. And God led him from South Florida to Central California, clear across America. The man was given a yacht years ago and has been a boating enthusiast ever since. And sailed that yacht daily in the Biscayne Bay almost. And he had to sell it because there was no way he could get it to California. And he feels like he's left everything he knows and everything he loves behind. Behind, He, he, he described pastoring the best way that I've ever heard it. And if he doesn't put it in a book, someday I will. He said, Charlie Pastor in this church is, trying to like, is like trying to nail jello to a tree. But you know, this fellow told me something. He's almost twice my age. Years ago in the little coast town of Horton, Texas, my daddy preached his ordination service. And he said, I know one thing. I know I'm about to go crazy, but I know I couldn't survive anywhere else in the world because this is where God wants me. You know, it would have been a very simple matter, and in very real ways it would not have been treachery or treason or sin against God for Daniel very simply to have praised, prayed with his, with his eyes opened and his feet under him instead of kneeling and facing Jerusalem as was his custom. But Daniel realized that even in the palace, as the president of the kingdom, second in power only to the king of Babylon, he was not safe unless he was obedient to God. Stories come out of Hong Kong from refugees who come from China as to the condition of the church in Red China. And you need not fear for the condition of the church in China because persecution has never killed the church. Good times kill the church. We must be a people who develop an awareness that no matter how unreasonable it may seem, no matter how isolated we may feel, no matter how unpopular it may be, no matter what the opposition may be, no matter who may not like it, no matter what the circumstance is, we had better be a people who obey God. For it is only when a Christian is within the will of God that he's safe. If you're within a will of, the will of God, a pit full of hungry lions cannot touch you. But if you are, you can trip over a daisy in a bed of clover and break your neck. This boldness required for these times demands trust. Why should we do something or other? Well, because God said so. Well, show it to me on paper. Not only I cannot, I will not, and I don't care to, and it doesn't matter to me how it looks on paper. If God says do it, we're going to do it. It's that simple. How long do you think Moses would have been going through channels before he got somebody to authorize him to part the waters of the Red Sea? Have you ever thought about that? Moses had one thing going for him, though. God spoke and he obeyed. And a poor fellow that was carrying the straitjacket never got to use it because the waters parted and Israel went through on dry ground. I mentioned Hong Kong and the church in China. I want to close by telling you a story 
that is not made up, it's very true, which has come by way of a missionary in Hong Kong. He reports that in Red China, you may worship the Lord under certain circumstances. You may worship God as long as you never worship twice with the same people. As long as you never worship twice in the same place. And as long as you never advertise or tell anybody that you're going to meet. Other than that, you're free to worship. It is said that in Red China, in every village of any size, and especially in the greater cities, religious meetings are organized by means of what the Chinese people call God's contact in the marketplace. You see, it is not illegal to worship as long as you do not advertise, you do not go to the same place, and you do not go with the same people. So the people who contact the man in the marketplace or the woman, God's contact in the marketplace, and are told, now tonight at 10 o'clock you will go to so-and-so's home or you will go down by the river or you will go to the outskirts of the city and their believers will worship the Lord. Those people who so worship are not breaking the law. But God's contact in the marketplace is breaking the law and it is an offense punishable by death. To the missionary who conveyed this story came an eyewitness account of a Mrs. Chang who was God's contact in the marketplace in Wu Chow province. She lasted longer than some, but not quite as long as others, for sooner or later the Red Guard, the Secret Service, finds God, God's contact in the marketplace and does away with them. She lasted almost three weeks before she was discovered. And when she was discovered, she was taken to the town square. She was covered with gasoline, and she was set on fire. The missionary who related this story said that to the Chinaman who told him the story, he said, oh, it must be very difficult indeed to find somebody to be God's contact in the marketplace. To which his Chinese refugee friend replied, Oh no. He said, We consider our finest hour to be when we can become God's contact in the marketplace. We live in a time for boldness, it demands strength, it demands obedience, it demands trust. And it demands a willingness on our part to be God's contact in the marketplace, whatever the price, whatever the obstacles, whatever the cost. Let's pray for just a moment. Lord Jesus, Lord, I'm just going to be real honest and I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to let the folks listen in. Lord, I'm a little bit frightened because in my humanity, I'd like to do everything that anybody wants done just in the name of peace. But Lord, I've just got this feeling that we're going to have to make a decision. It's either going to be your way or it's going to be some other way. 
And I pray that you give us a people who fear nothing but you and who are concerned with nothing but pleasing you, realizing that when we are true to you, we cannot be unfair to anybody. We cannot be unkind or uncompassionate or unconcerned about anybody. For we know that you loved all men so much that you gave Jesus to the cross. Father, it's a time for boldness. And the only strength that we have, the only motivation to obedience that we have is our trust in you. Father, prepare us and use us as your contact, whatever the price. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.